Hello and welcome to the Beyond Your Research Degree podcast by the University of Exeter Doctoral College. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Beyond Your Research Degree for 2021. My name's Kelly Priest, and I'm the Research Development Manager for PGRs at the University of Exeter. And I'm delighted for our first episode of 2021 to be bringing you a discussion with Hannah Roberts. Hannah did her PhD and a couple of postdocs and then became a career coach. So she works one-to-one with women in research and academia, particularly in STEM and scientific fields. So Hannah, are you happy to introduce yourself? Absolutely. So hi, everybody. I'm Hannah Roberts. And well, first of all, I have a degree, master's, PhD, postdoc in chemistry. And I spent eight years managing large multi-million pound projects between academics and industry and commercializing that research. And part of the commercialization, I started a spin-out company with uh, three other female academics and I was managing director of that company for two years. And I did all of that while having three children. And it was actually on my third maternity leave where I decided um, that maybe I had outstretched and outgrown the role that I was in in scientific project management. And now was the time to, to make a switch. And so that's that was the moment where I decided I was going to be a career coach specifically for women in science. Amazing. So um, can we talk a little, take a step back from what you do now and talk a little bit about the spin-out company and how mm-hmm. that came about? Was So that was du- during your research degree, is that right? Um, mine's a little bit more complicated. So um, when I finished my PhD, I went straight into a postdoc. So I switched from chemistry to biotechnology at that point. Um, so I'd got really into the analytical side of mass spectrometry as a tool to help with um, sort of looking at the structures of carbohydrates at that time. And part then I was two weeks, well, I should say I was probably four weeks into my postdoc and I fell pregnant. So when I returned after my maternity leave, um, I kind of switched role at that point. So when I first started my postdoc, I was half project manager, half postdoc, but essentially that meant I was most of the time postdoc and I, you know, sort of did the project management alongside. But when I returned, I just came back as a scientific project manager. So at that point, I was managing lots of different uh, of these projects. And because I knew the technology really well, um, one of the things that a lot of funding bodies are looking for are obviously commercializations from these from these projects so whether that's license agreements whether that's spin-out companies whether that's patents um, or something like that and we decided the best vehicle for this new technology in terms of the mass spectrometry was to do it through um through a new company because that way um we could get industry be able to send us samples and all that kind of stuff independently of the project and that way we could start to then find our own funding and our own money to to make that um, a company in its own right. Wow. I mean it sounds impressive on paper I'm not (laughs) I'm not sure that's how I felt about it at the time. (laughs) Yes I can appreciate that I think there's two things I want to pick up on there 
Um, the first is about kind of, so there seems to be quite a shift in that to, from kind of scientific research to project management and more kind of business and entrepreneurial related skills. How did you find that, that shift in focus? Um, to be honest, I, I missed out a bit from the career history because I try and make it sound succinct so that it's, you know, degree, master's, PhD, postdoc in chemistry. So actually between my degree and my PhD, I um, went on a squiggly loop of not knowing what on earth I was doing. <laughs> so I worked for Croda Chemicals on a graduate development scheme for a couple of years and tried lots of different areas of the business. And so I spent uh, quite some time in sales because they thought I would be quite good at that, um, which I did, I did enjoy to a degree. Um, and then I felt I was too far removed from the science. So then I got a business development manager role in cancer studies um, down at the Patterson Institute. And that's where I learned how to, um, a little bit more about how to write grants and then how to manage them and how to manage, manage the funds of them. So I, I did that for a couple of years. Then I decided oh, I need a vocation. So I'm going to become a teacher so I did my teacher training for a year wow. and yeah quite a few different things and then I was like oh this isn't for me at all the kids are stressing me out they're not listening it's not like being in university where everybody just listens because they want <laughs> to be there and I was on a real a real spiral of I've got to find something because um everybody around me was off with their careers and I felt like I was just restarting all the time and so I was actually offered a PhD by my old supervisor because it's the first time he'd had funding since, since I left. And I was like, I'm just going to do that because that's where I, where, I, where I excelled and where I could feel, feel good again. Because at that time I was quite anxious and having panic attacks and all kinds of things. So actually having that PhD set me back up on a path of sort of a good a good place um, to build a career from, to be honest. So um, the PhD was kind of, kind of a savior for me, <laughs> which is not what you hear from most people. Not necessarily, but I think it, it's really, it's always really nice to hear people who have that experience of, do, of doing a research degree, mm. of, of coming to it and it being very much the, the right thing and the thing that they needed at that point in time, career-wise, you know, and life-wise. Mm. The second thing I wanted to pick up from what you said was about the fact that you started your postdoc um, within a very short space of time, fell pregnant, yes. went on maternity leave and the role changed. And if you, if you feel comfortable talking about it, I wondered if you, know, if you could say a little bit about what that was like career-wise in terms of um, you know, going so soon into a job and then taking maternity leave and then coming back to a slightly different role. Like how, what was that experience like? Because I think that's a concern for a lot of women. Mm, absolutely. And because I'd had those different interim roles before I'd done my PhD, at that point, I was 28 years old when I got married. Yeah. And I I'd just finished my PhD. So I really was at a time in my life where I was looking to, to start my family. And I was in the last year of my PhD and I looked ahead at the other women in the department. So I was in the Department of Chemistry. And I, I found five other women out of over 200 people. And I was looking carefully at what they were doing. And I think two of, 
two or three had children and I was very concerned that um, what, what it looked like to me was that to make it work, it had to be all consuming. Because in my mind, when I had children, I wanted to have this kind of maybe just work three days a week. And I just couldn't see this elusive thing that was a part-time professor. It didn't seem to exist for me. Um, but <laughs> as is the nature of these things, I was recommended for a postdoc and it seemed like I was on this conveyor belt and it was the next logical uh, progression and step. And having had, when I went to the interview, which was an informal chat, because of course I've been recommended. So um, I had this interview and it was just sort of proposed that, well, we have this postdoc, but it also needs to include some project management. You have that in your history. Are you okay with doing this? And, and of course, I just say yes, yes, of course, that's absolutely fine. Um, and she was willing to wait for eight months for me to start. So I had time to finish up my postdoc and my experiments um, and write up my PhD. So a couple of months before I actually started the postdoc, I actually fell pregnant. Um, and unfortunately, I had a miscarriage at that time. So my supervisor, my um, who I was moving to actually knew about that. So it wasn't a massive surprise to her when I started the job. And then, you know, a few, a few months in, I said that I was pregnant and she was, she was really pleased for me and happy and, and um, really supportive actually. So it was more of a, it was the time in the life. You can't kind of change the, the biology of you can put it off, but for how long? Because I'm on that conveyor belt at that point. There's never a good time to have a child, is there? <laughs> In terms of your career. Um, and so, and my husband is five years older than me. So we were, we just decided that was the time to do it with stability or without stability. And at least he had a very stable job, but um, at least with postdocs, you know exactly how long the contract's for. So I found stability within the instability of knowing at least that. Coming on to, to what you do now, can you talk a little bit about the, the coaching you do and the particular focus that you have? Yeah, I think because of the experiences that I had and you know being on that conveyor belt, but not seeing what I really wanted out of academia, you know, that part-time professor kind of role, and then having gone a completely sort of um, being molded in a way to do a different position, but it wasn't ne necessarily using my natural talents and capabilities. So we, we actually had someone who was in the personal development sphere when we were running a meeting for one of these um, projects I was managing and she used what's called talent dynamics profiling. And she profiled um, all of us in the team. And when I got my profile back, I was like, oh, this isn't me. I've answered the questions as if I'm in my current role, but it's not my natural preference. And when we had a debrief about it, it was really clear that the role I was doing was the complete opposite end of the spectrum to my natural preferences. And that's when I was like, oh, I'm doing the complete wrong, wrong career. I'm in the wrong job here. And, but I don't have the confidence to get out of it. So I didn't feel it was, I had stability. I had another five year contract. I could have keep, kept rolling on and on and on and I could design and do whatever I wanted within those roles. So um, 
it was actually having coaching for the, the last two years before I finished that role that enabled me to have the confidence to be able to, to move on to something different because my, my first two maternity leaves, I actually worked straight through them. So, um, I was concerned that I wouldn't have a contract to go back to. So I decided to, you know, say, Oh, I'll just continue with my job while I'm on maternity leave so that basically that I would be indispensable. And this is a common practice with lots of people. They, they write their fellowships on maternity leave. In fact, mo most of the female academics said to me, Oh, I wrote my fellowship the first 12 weeks of academia um, of having a baby, or I went back to work after two weeks and got a nanny, or these are the kind of things people were telling me. So I thought, well, I should be doing something on maternity leave um, and I did try I did start to try to write a fellowship but I quickly decided I wasn't quite good enough to do that at that moment in time <laughs> funnily enough um, but actually having coaching those last two years which came about as as business coaching through the company um, but I found it really helpful at a personal level and having restored my confidence to, to that level, I then went on to a third maternity leave and said, no, I'm not doing anything on this maternity leave. And having that time and space to think and explore different things on that maternity leave was really crucial to me then not actually returning to that role. And during that third maternity leave, it was wonderful. You know, it was a really nice summer. I started a rock painting group. Um, I was looking for loads of stuff and then I found this thing online about Superwoman. I was like, oh my goodness, it sounds just like me. <laughs> you know, running at 200 miles an hour, pushing to prove myself, all this stuff. And when I dug into it, they um, had these foundational courses in time and energy management and, and some coaching stuff. And I had a look at it, did the courses and I was like, oh, oh, I can see a link now between... Um, between this coaching stuff and the difference that I want to make within universities, particularly for women. And when I made that link, I was like, ah, I can do this through coaching. Having been coached, I knew the impact that it had on me. And then I thought as a coach, I can then help other people to navigate this career path much more smoothly than I ever did it. Um, and that's what's really important to me, having, having this smoother, pathway that doesn't necessarily mean um you know continuing along this conveyor belt of academia it can mean lots of different things but finding the right pathway for you and the other part that's really important to me is having more women in leadership positions yes in academia but also the world around because we know that um the more diverse the leadership is um the better decisions that are made um so those are the kind of the two components that I'm trying to combine together within my own coaching company. And so you, even though you're not an academic, you're working a lot with academics. Yeah. So my, my coaches tend to be um, from postdoc. So I get a lot of postdocs, fellows, group leaders, and also similar positions in industry as well. Um, so it tends to be tends to be more of the um, where you've got a natural kind of career progression. So 
or career transition. So for postdocs, it's that kind of last 12 months on the contract, causing it to be on the brain all the time, you know, oh my goodness, I've got to, got to yeah. sort of line something up. Um, and I get a lot of fellows that have done their whole, or partway through the fellowship and not sure if they wanna continue because of the stress and the pressures of anxiety, um, of academia. Um, and it's around one, helping people to manage the current situation more powerfully and more confidently with the right tools to equip them to do that. And at the same time, trying to figure out this piece about who they really are and what impact they want to make on the world because your value or your self-confidence um, can come from your vision, mission, purpose, natural talents and capabilities and your values. And when all of those five pieces are defined, that's when we can truly own our own value. We'll be doing the thing that we love doing, finding fulfillment in it and getting paid what we're worth as well. So those are the kind of key pieces for me. Yeah, um, I, I think it's really interesting that you said that you, you talk about that because it's clear how much of an impact the kind of that assessment of values and reflection um, had on you and your career path and then the kind of having those conversations with your clients and I know from my own experience I used to be an academic and I did it for a number of years and then realized I was quite unhappy and it was only when I took a step back and for the first time in, in my life kind of had that reflection on my values and the kind of work life I wanted and the work life balance I wanted that I realized I was in completely the wrong job. Um, and, and that's the kind mm -hmm. of started me on the, on the path that led me to working in a professional services job in a university. But I know from experience when we kind of say to people, or, oh, you know, doing these kind of psychometric tests or, you know, values assessments and everything is really important to understanding where you want to go in your career i think sometimes people feel a bit like oh yeah all right okay whatever and 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 i think no really it really will change the way that you view things oh for sure it it did for me but on that point i was that person who was too busy i'd i'd think these things are interesting like oh you know there's a there's a um researchers into management course i'll apply for that and there's an imposter syndrome workshop i'd apply for all these things i'd be booked on them and then i wouldn't show up i'm, I'm that naughty person that was far too busy and important to actually turn up because i have too much work to do because i'm super womaning I'm, I'm too busy like I've got, I've got to be gone at half past four to pick up the kids and I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I can't actually find the time to go to the things that are most important to me. And so I think some of the things to address are actually the culture that causes the superwoman kind of archetype that prevents us from actually accessing these things in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that is... Uh, it's interesting kind of the focus that you have on on women and, and and moving women through their career path and leadership because it you know we know that that is a particular problem um that women face is that kind of that expectation of or the expectation we put on ourselves and the expectation put on us by society and our workplaces to be that superwoman 
Yeah, it yeah, it's a complicated beast. <laughs> Superwoman. Um so we have these sort of statistics that, you know, only and I, I saw it myself. So 43% of women will start with a chemistry degree. And certainly when I was doing chemistry, everyone around me looked just like me, you know, I didn't see a problem. And it wasn't until I got to that, um, just looking ahead to that PhD to postdoc position where I really noticed, oh, two steps ahead of me, there's not so many of them about. That was the very first inkling I had that, you know, there was this kind of leaky pipeline. And now the statistics show, and I, I quote chemistry, but you can look them up in everyone's own um, personal fields, but only 9% of women become professors. 9% and 43% are going in. So this is a huge drop off of an already, of a pipeline, of a conveyor belt that isn't going to be for everybody in the first place. But of those women that start out, there's not many people making it through. And I sort of have a theory on this because I'm a scientist, so I like cool. to have a theory. So there's this statistic that says um, that women are 60% more likely to suffer job stress and burnout than men. And there's some components to that. So first of all, there's some work by Hofstetter. Um, and he talks about masculine versus feminine cultures. And there are six different independent studies that feed into what determines the masculine qualities of a culture. But they came up with things like material rewards for success, individualism, competition is celebrated, um, th these kind of um, qualities. And the more feminine qualities were seen as collaboration, um, caring for the weak and the sick in society, and um, a more collaborative type of society. And interestingly from the research, um, Japan came out as the most masculine country in the whole world, unsurprisingly actually, and Finland was lowest on the score. Now the UK was actually the ninth most masculine country in the whole world, the ninth. And that was super shocking to me because we're swimming around in a soup that is celebrating this competition culture that drives superwomen. And another factor to layer in on that then is also our personal paradigm. So I come from quite a masculine paradigm family because my dad worked away Monday to Friday and my mum was in charge of the family, like superwoman her way through. And if we go through um, back a generation, my grandma was the only one to actually show up to work when bombs were coming down on their village. Um, because it's that kind of push through show up no matter what mentality in my family. And then layering on top of that, a workplace hierarchical culture where actually your, your colleagues in academia are also your competition. And it's very hierarchical as well because we've got, you know, professors, senior lecturers, lecturers, fellows, postdocs. Um, you can see how all those three things combined create this soup. And there's also a statistic to show that women are less happy as a gender than we were 40 years ago. And that is irrespective of um, 
of lots of different factors, like how, how many children you have, if you have children, whether you're married, single, divorced, whatever. The only exception is African-American women, and they are slightly happier than they were um, 40 years ago, but still less happy as a gender than their men. So why are we getting, um, even though now we have more opportunities than ever before, why are we getting sick? Why are we burning out? So my theory is that this archetype of superwoman that so many of us are using is actually the very power that is preventing us from um, being happy. It's the thing that's now burning us out in the workplace. So it got us these amazing opportunities, but it can't, it's not actually sustaining us long term. And certainly that's what I see a lot with my clients. Those in superwoman may also be getting, you know, poorly once every three months that sort of tonsillitis seven times a year that's what I used to get it's that kind of pushing too hard for too long and there has to be a different way to get stuff done and what we say about superwoman is that it's operating from fear because if there's an underlying fear there then superwoman's going to show up to make us feel even um, you know, so we don't, we don't have to feel bad or, or ever again, you know, it's the perfect antidote to imposter syndrome. So if I'm not good enough, don't worry, superwoman can step in and save the day. So I no, don't have to feel like that again. But of course we do. And so superwoman just yeah. continues. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know all of this all too well. Um, I recognize so much of, of myself and, and so many of the um, amazing women around me in that. So, uh-huh. Can we talk a little bit about your coaching and what, so what it actually involves? So you work one-on-one with clients um, and quite often with, with postdocs or people on that kind of career track. What, what sort of work are you doing with them? What kind of conversations are you having? Um, yeah, it's, it's a mixture of different things because yes i am primarily focused on career coaching so i'm looking at people who have formed their identity around their career as as the major part of their their life typically these people are really concerned with making an impact making a difference helping other people um so the first piece of work that i always do is to drill down and get clarity on what the actual core of the problem is um And often that can come down to a number of different factors, but it could be the perception or the judgment of other people. You know, um, when we worry what other people think, it can cause us to um, preempt situations or um, overthink it in the moment or catastrophize. So those are some of the things that people might be coming to me with or procrastinating because, if we are very concerned about the perception or the judgments of other people, it can be hard for us to complete upon tasks, particularly the big tasks like grant writing or papers, because we know that we're going to get criticism in return. So what I'm doing right at the beginning when I start working with people is figuring out what the actual underlying um, challenges are for them by giving clarity from lots of different perspectives and angles Um, Once we have that, we set out a series of aspirational intentions for your future. And we break those down into the very first action steps you can get um, to start to move you towards those intentions. Um, 
if then from that point they want to continue, we then look at the core of the problem, how the brain works, you know, that cycle of iterative thinking, you know, how we create meaning from situations, attach emotions to them, and then that feeds into the next scenario. So we look at that iterative cycle of thinking and break that down with tools that you can apply to stop the overthinking. Um, from that point, we layer in another piece of awareness about Superwoman and her disempowering archetype called Cousins of the Bitch, the Martyr and the Victim. And we use a tool to trigger track yeah. those behaviors. And I use specific NLP based tools to let go of that stuff because it's important to me to let go of the challenging um, patterns of behavior before we start career planning, because you could have a very different outcome from if you're coming from a confident point of view as to when you're first coming into coaching. So it takes me about six sessions to, to really get to the core of it and move people beyond it. And then the last six sessions are really focused towards defining your value and working on your leadership capabilities. So defining your value is that piece around vision, purpose, mission, natural talents and capabilities and values. And then from that piece, I'm also using another profiling tool. So I use talent dynamics. I also use the women's five power types um, in my coaching and I help people to enhance the qualities of say, for instance, if um, Superwoman shows up, Superwoman doesn't make us a better communicator. It just makes us more anxious. So if we're in an interview, we don't want to be in Superwoman and be jittery and nervous. We actually want to step into the queen power type who is serene, calm, in command, and who can articulate her vision really, really powerfully. Um, so it's about showing people how to access those five different power types also for leadership enhancement. And then we do a five-year detailed five-year plan and design a network of support consciously to help put that plan into place. So when I'm removed from that picture, people will have the right people to help them get there in terms of mentors, sponsors, and, um, and other kinds of support as well. There perhaps the obvious ways that you are um, using your experience of working in academia and in a research context um, to work with and relate to your your clients but one of the things we always try and kind of ask and talk about is how actually you know what 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 skills and experience specifically are you using from your research degree and your postdoc in the role that you're in now are there things that have transferred over really really clearly or do you feel it's a completely different, you know, it's been a completely different kind of role and you've needed to learn a completely new set of skills? I think with, um, with postdocs and PhDs, there are so many transferable skills that are really, really helpful um, for any given job. So the things that I, I definitely fall back on time and time again are, I did my whole PhD was around using different spectroscopic techniques and analysis. So I'm very analytical in the way that I approach coaching too. So for instance, I have um, those aspirational intentions for people's futures, but it's that breaking it down, that analysis of, well, they've said this in this history session and now they're saying this and I've, I've got a tool for that. And I know I'm constantly analyzing what people 
are saying and the context and bringing it all together into into a big picture and i'm also analyzing the progress that people are making on um, a fortnightly basis in terms of scorings and ratings so i've become very scientific about whether or not the coaching is beneficial and working and i need to see that progress to know that i'm making a difference and an impact to that person um, tangibly so i think that that those analytical skills are crucial um, creating systems so i don't know about you but in my phd i had to create protocols and systems that were new to do everything and um and i'm always working in okay i've done that with that client but how does that translate to the next one and how can i create a more streamlined system to do that thing and how can i make things iteratively better on each cycle so that's important to me and the other part is in terms of um in terms of the phd i think creativity is one of the big things that most scientists whether they know it or not it's a big part of science having that creative freedom and that's what i find really exciting about coaching it's having that creative freedom to to shape a particular session in a particular way to when i work one-to-one -one, it's not a set program it's okay they brought this in this day and this in and this is how i'm going to shape it and i find that really exciting that creative freedom um although yes it often leaves me with many tabs open at the same time <laughs> but that's the nature of uh, creativity um what else is important from that i guess in terms of the obviously having run a business before was important in terms of just the being able to do that thing that was a big piece for me because it didn't feel as daunting to incorporate a company and 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 run all the books and that kind of stuff and set targets and goals so so that was also helpful to me as well that's brilliant and i think really insightful um about how you apply those analytical skills and i know when a lot of our researchers have an anxiety about searching for jobs outside of academia and and that feeling of well how am i going to find something in spectroscopy did i say that right um mm -hmm. and actually you know nine times out of ten people won't necessarily be moving into a role outside academia academia that's specific to their discipline but is about the application of of the skills that they used to conduct their research more than a, the mm -hmm. topic they were researching and so it's, it's great to hear you articulate that so so clearly and um and eloquently like it, it's yeah it's really really useful um what one of the other sort of things that we ask people because it's it's a key thing people like to know is what the main difference is. You know, you, you've you've done your PhD, you've done a postdoc, um, moving into kind of the business, but also one-to-one -one coaching. What's different about working in that environment? Oh my goodness, what's different about working in this environment? Um, it's got, like I said, there are these trans 
translational skills that I'm using, but it's completely different to to that world and that that environment. Completely different. Um, yeah. So in academia, you have you know your colleagues that you work with, and you can um, you've got people to bounce ideas off, and that's. I always used to find that really, really helpful. And where I was, maybe it wasn't my natural talent or capabilities. I knew exactly who to find to help me proofread my grant applications, who was really good on the detail, because I'm more of the big picture thinker. Now, when I'm working in coaching, I'm, I'm running my own business. I'm, I'm by myself at the moment. So what I have found super important, one of the big differences for me is I'm by myself. And so tapping into a big community of other people doing the same thing as me, where I can um, bounce ideas off them. I have my own coach. I have a coaching mentor as well, supervisor, so that I can get even better at what it is that I'm doing. Having all of these different people in place has been really important to bring structure that I used to have now into something that could be um really lonely if it wasn't for for that yeah i think that's a that's really helpful and i think a really key really key thing to consider when people are thinking about kind of what kind of environment they want to be working in yeah when i'm i i do um i do have a like two-part workshop on defining your legacy your life's work and one part of that is the vehicle of choice that you use um to express what it is that you want to do in the world whether that's being an employee whether that's in a not-for-profit sector or whether it's as a freelancer or an entrepreneur now i would bracket myself as a freelancer as opposed to an entrepreneur because although i like that freedom and i quite like an element of risk I actually don't want a massive team of people to manage. That's not my strong point. My strong point is creating new stuff all the time and finding that creativity with, with helping the clients that I have. You know, that's the bit that really excites me, helping other people, making an impact and then doing new stuff all the time. Whereas I don't actually want to manage a massive amount of people. So when you really understand yourself really well, you don't you can find the right vehicle of choice for you um which doesn't necessarily mean that because you started a business suddenly you're having to be this massive entrepreneur all the time so um figuring out who you really are is a key part of which vehicle you'll choose to to express that in amazing thank you um what advice would you give to someone who's thinking about taking the kind of path that you have so moving into something that is more um kind of freelance but also looking at something that's kind of coaching and developing people oh i remember having this conversation with another coach at our coaching certification program she was um a research fellow and um had gone into the coaching certification program having never been coached herself, having never undertaken that kind of personal development. And she got there and she said, 
I really feel that if I'm coaching other people, then perhaps I should have some coaching myself. <laughs> and I said, yeah, definitely. Because I'd had coaching for two years before I'd made that connection that this was the way that I could make the difference. Um, and it, that was really important because I knew that what a difference it made to me. So anybody who's thinking of moving into coaching or research development in some way, um, really do the work yourself first <laughs> before you take other people along because you want to be at least a few steps ahead of the other people because we're all, you know, taking off layers, peeling back layers, becoming more of ourselves in the process. Um, but it's great to get a head start before your clients, basically. Yeah, I think that that's, that's really that's really useful and of course would be a useful kind of thing to do anyway are there any apart from kind of being coached are there any experiences that you would advise current research students to kind of make the most of whilst they're whilst they're still within that university system or you know still completing their degree yeah um i think if i had my time again i would do more of the courses that were available and actually carve out the time to do them um, because we lose so much time and energy on so many other things and I would have a specific time um, of the week where I'm working specifically on my own self and my own career development as opposed to blocking out all the time to do everything for everybody else and for the projects that I'm working on to have that self-reflection self-development time factored in um, and there are so many more things available within universities now um, to take advantage of them, really. Thank you so much to Hannah for taking the time to speak to me and to have such a, a rich and fascinating conversation about finding your feet and trying things out and identifying your values. But also, you know, some of the very particular challenges that women face not just in academia and research careers but in the job market in general and that's it for this episode join us next time when we'll be talking to another researcher about their career beyond their research degree